Today's reading is Job 38, 1 through 7, 34 through 41. It can be found on page 494 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Prepare to defend yourself. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand it. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy, can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who gives the ibis wisdom about the flooding of the Nile, or gives the rooster the understanding of when to crow? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lions and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch on their dens or lie in the wait in the thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out for God and wander about for lack of food? The word of the Lord. Job is that God speaks. And you may have noticed 
that God gives us these words. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And then to carry on that knowledge theme, God says, where were you when I laid the first foundations? Tell me if you understand. We're talking about understanding, and uh, we have these questions of the week that you can fill out, and that's also just a reminder, too, that I didn't say earlier. There's a contact card in the worship guide, and you can use that to connect with us, or you can put a question on there, or you can answer the question that's on there. And then often we talk about it next week. Well, those questions, we got a little switched up because in our planning because um, a little late in the game, I kind of switched how we were going to deal with the book of Job once I finally started studying it and realizing the flow of the book. So this question was actually asked two weeks ago, but it pertains to the topic today. And the question was, um, we got a bunch of answers. Uh, what would you like to understand? And so we got all kinds of answers. Um, someone said, I want to understand women. That's it. You know, that's the, the cliche stand-up comedian kind of track right there, right? But uh, that one, the person says that would be stellar. Um, speaking of stellar, dark matter and quantum physics, but really mainly women. Um, someone else says, I keep trying to think of something but feel like really understanding anything would be a big responsibility. Someone else says with the... The UN, recent UN prognosis about radical life changes made by 2030 with the forecasted climate um, creating severe consequences. What and can, can and should Christians do? Someone else said, why bad things happen? Someone else said, James Joyce's book, Ulysses, and how large the universe really is. Someone else says, predestination and free will and how both views will work together to help us see God. Someone else mentions genocide and the Holocaust. So, understanding is a big issue. And as we get into the book of Job, and we get into God talking about things and replying, it's about understanding. And what do you understand? What level of understanding do you have? We got into the book of Job, and we, and we realized, and I got to just give a little intro every time, just so we're all on the same page, is that as you're in chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's a heavenly conversation happening, and the accuser comes forward and God is boasting about, well, hey, have you seen my servant Job? He's, Job is set up this way as the one who is blameless and upright and avoids evil. And so in this match between the accuser and God, God allows for some suffering to come Job's way. You have round one, which is suffering where his stuff is taken away. And the people in his life, because Job is very wealthy, he's like an ancient Near Eastern billionaire. But it's all taken away. And then there's a round two conversation in the heavenly realms where um, the accuser says, yeah, but deal with his body. Take away his physical comforts, and then he won't be faithful to you anymore. You know, Job's faith is just like everyone else. It's just contingent on the blessings that they have from God. It's not real faith. And so then round two comes, and then Job doesn't get rid of his faith. In fact, he continues to have this attitude of, of worship and saying, hey, should I accept only good from God and not trouble. Naked, uh, I came into this world and naked I will depart. So that's Job's words. And then it moves into this dialogue with his friends. And so what we see, we talked about this analogy of a gumball machine as a great analogy for what's really uh, dealt with in the book of Job. And the kids have loved coming forward after church and trying to get the gumball machine to work. Because it's a, it's a rigged gumball machine that works only intermittently. And so I don't even know what's going to happen here. But that's the point. So the gumball machine 
you put in your contribution to your church, to, and all those other organizations, you don't want to forget something. You do all the work. Maybe you're even a really hardworking person, and you know some extra things to do to get it to work. And then, you see, that yeah, worked pretty good. And you keep going, you know, so you get your whole life and start living that way. And you say, I get what I want, and I do the good things, and I heard it, there's another one, you know. And I'll stop after a couple of years if it keeps getting gumballs. Because, <laughs> you know, I got other things to say. Job and his friends. 
we see him saying some things actually to Job as well, because Job, one of the things Job is going to get out of this is he's going to get he's going to get his faith built up to even a more mature level. He's going to get not um, reprimanded by God the way that the friends are kind of reprimanded. Job's going to get taught by God, so it's not like he's been way out of line in in wanting to make his case before God and wanting an answer, but God sees that and answers that by instructing him and giving him an even bigger perspective than what Job already had. And so what God starts to say, and we read read that, James is reading that, what God starts to say is things like, basically, to put it in kind of like just a brief form is, oh, Job, so you want to get in here and converse, you want to to play with the big boys, you want to eat at the grown-ups table, Okay, that's very interesting. Um, that's very interesting, Job. Where were you now when the world was created? I'm sorry, well, you're probably there, right? You probably saw how that happened. You're so, this is Job. This is actually how God begins to talk. Very sarcastic. At one point, he says, literally in, in chapter 38, um, at this part, I mean, it's just, it's just dripping with sarcasm. God says in, in chapter 38, verse 20, um, he's talking about light and darkness and where they belong and where they come from. And he says, can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwelling? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. You know, you just get this, just really you get the sense of God's sense of humor and God's sarcasm as he's trying to talk to Job and expand God's, expand God's perspective. It's kind of like some freshman in college just got done with their first economics class and one thinks they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to write an email to Alan Greenspan and tell him how he screwed up, you know, back in, you know, it's like, what, what would Alan Greenspan say to this, you know, cheeky freshman economics student who just took his first class? It's like how I'm frustrated with Facebook because years ago, Facebook provided me with this feed that was chronological, and I could just go on and know that if I scroll down far enough, I get down to the place I was yesterday when I updated myself on all my friends, and then I could, you know, that would be it. I know that I saw everything, but then Facebook got all tricky with these algorithms and these ads and everything else, and I just started to give up. I don't know what's going on on Facebook anymore. Someone invites me to something on it, and I I don't see it, because I'm just, Facebook and me were kind of through. I'm still on having to leave the account with some of you. But I mean, I just kind of like, why? Why did you do that? I got a lot of why, deep why questions. <laughs> so if I, you know, if I picture myself on an elevator with Mark Zuckerberg, right? And I'm like, aha, I got you here. Why did you start doing that to Facebook? You know, and you can imagine Mark Zuckerberg saying, oh my gosh. I'm sure, certainly, you know how to code. <laughs> certainly, you know about algorithms. Mr. Facebook expert. Certainly you've sat before a Congress and answered questions. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, right? This is kind of what's happening on a, on a much deeper and richer and more beautiful scale <laughs> in the book of Job. He's talking about the created order and saying, were you there? Were you born yet? He's talking about the stars and saying, hey, you know how they've been arranged. You tell them where to go. You tell them how to shine. You know you design Orion's belt, you know, and he goes into all this stuff about the galaxies and stars. And one of my favorite parts is 
Um, oh, I'm sorry, Joe. Do the do the lightning bolts report to you? Um, you know, it's like, and, and you just get this beautiful. You actually are brought into the awe, not just his sarcasm, which is delightful, but brought into the awe and wonder of some of the most powerful things that we observe and that we absolutely don't understand how to work. And you're just brought into this. You're brought into God's mind and his imagination as he just loves to explain how the wild donkeys laugh at the ones who are domesticated and say, ha ha, nobody is my master. I'll kick among the hills and be free. And God's just playing around and saying, you know, look at this ostrich. What a strange creature. And, you know, it looks like an inadequate disappointment until it runs. <laughs> you know? And then, you know, so it's just God delighting in the strangeness and the ironies and the wonder and, the, and just asking Job and all of us to say, yeah, what is our place in this all this beauty and wonder and grandiose power and weightiness. And then God gets into these two giant creatures at the end he describes, and we think he's talking about um, the hippopotamus and the alligator, but nobody's really sure because they're called um, different names um, in, in this book. They're called the Bohemoth and the Leviathan. But you know, it's basically like, you know, are, Job, are you going to take that, you know, he goes to all these descriptions about the alligator and the and they're wonderful. And it's like God delights in the chaos and the raw power and the ugliness, but the power. And says to Job, Are you, you know, is your wife going to take a hook and alligator and bring it to the marketplace to sell? You know, it's just kind of this um, you're out of your realm, Job. Um, there are things here that I have created and I understand and I have attained, and you don't have security clearance in this realm. And today, you know, a lot of it is ancient Near Eastern science in a way. It's like the edges of knowledge at that time. Today, it might, if it was written, it might say, you know, Joe, do you, do you understand how the brain creates consciousness? Joe, would you like to um, just quickly explain to me how you reconcile um, the theory of general relativity with the theory of quantum mechanics? Would you just quickly kind of reconcile that dilemma? Because I know, I know how, but I'm sure you do. Um, you know, Joe, just, just for maybe for a month, why don't you go ahead and take care of just bringing all those little one-celled um, things from over here to that egg over here, and, and when, when that sperm meets that egg, you just handle the transfer of the DNA and, you know, go into one cell and then two and four and eight. Why don't you go ahead and make sure that all works for about a month? You know, that's bringing it to, the, to some of the edges maybe of where your mind gets boggled today. God is guiding Job back to his original starting point, really. Job's original starting point is really a glorious and an amazing one that basically says, I don't need to understand everything in order to put myself in a posture of trust and worship. When Job fell to the ground in chapter 1, he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So God is trying to guide Job to that and add new layers to that. And, he's, and that's what we get invited into as well. There's an amazing place in the book of Romans where after delving deep in some of the most difficult questions that the early church was struggling with, 
And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing the book of Romans, in chapter 11, verse 33, he just breaks out into worship and humble song. And he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. There's this illustration that's sort of been passed down from speaker to preacher to preacher, and eventually I found it in, um, from Tim Keller. Um, and it goes this way. If the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, was the thickness of a, of a piece of paper, the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And our galaxy is less than a speck of dust in the part of the universe that we can see. And that part of the universe might just be a speck of dust compared to all the universe. And if Jesus is the Son of God who holds all this together with the word of his power, this might not be the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your personal assistant. Christians, when they stumbled on using the word uh, in, in like the first century, century, they stumbled on using the word Lord. You know, Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Why that, why that stuck? Why they, it really captured what is at the essence of following God and believing in God? As when Richard Rohr wrote his book of um, analyzing the book of Job, has some fantastic things um, to say. One of them related to this topic. He says, the fruit of the biblical revelation depends more than anything else on having a Lord. Even our rejection of the word under the guise of sexist connotations reveals the extent of our fear, autonomy, and rebellion against any outer superiority. Having a Lord in whatever phraseology we care to use implies that Another is my teacher, and I am the taught. Another is in control, and I am not. Another is the reference point, and I am the disposable one. He says, allowing God to be our Lord is not something we can do as easily as believing this, doing that, attending this, or avoiding that. It is always a process of a lifetime, a movement towards union, that will always feel like a loss of self-importance and autonomy. Having a Lord is what Job's invitation is. Having a Lord involves grappling with the fact that there might be levels of clearance Levels of, in a sense, security clearance or levels of knowledge. Or to put it in the realm of like, you know, our work world. There might be meetings of the higher-ups that are happening that you're not invited to. In your relationship with God. There might be information and emails being sent that you're not CC'd on. It's, 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 a, it's above your training. It's above your position. It's, it's way beyond... 
what your place is in the company. And in the Bible, why this is so important is because if we don't have a God, if we don't have a God who um, is big enough to have answers to problems that are beyond our ability to understand, then a God can never be doing things beyond our understanding that come to bless us because we won't receive them. If our mindset is that we have to understand that everything God does has to, has to work on our fairness scale, then the unfairness of the gospel that benefits us as a Christian can never touch our lives. There is an unfairness essential to the conversation of Job and the conversation in the whole Bible that if you're not open to, and if you're stuck with the gumball analogy, then the fruits, you might not like the, the scorching heat of the unfairness, but the fruits of the unfairness, you'll never get either if you disqualify it, if you keep it out of your life. And there's a lot of stuff that Job receives, there's a lot of stuff that happens from the book of Job that Job doesn't know. Just real quickly, Job doesn't know that Satan is getting basically defeated in his accusation against Job. That through this book, in the heavenly realms, there is a defeat. There is a like, Satan is wrong and Satan doesn't get his way. That is happening because of Job's faithfulness. He doesn't know that. We know that. We get to peer in and see that. We, he doesn't know that God actually believes in his faithfulness. And God, tr God trusts Job's faith. He, Job doesn't know that um, his friends and his wife will get this powerful teaching time where they're allowed to grow and add and come from a simplistic gumball machine faith to something more with more integrity. Job doesn't know that millions of us will get a chance since this happened to have the same journey and to look at our own faith for its authenticity. Job doesn't get to see any of this. And Job doesn't see that at the end, blessings are going to return. If he had seen any of it, if he had seen even one of those things, he could have had faith that was contingent on that and said, well, I know that Satan's getting defeated in the higher realm, so I'll continue to be good just because of that. But he doesn't know any of that. He continues to have faith that stands. You know, there's um, some of the ingredients in Job prepare us to see the glory of God's love in Jesus. That Job is suffering without answer. Job, just like Jesus, suffered without answer from God when he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffered as one who's blameless, just the way that Job suffered as one who's blameless. Jesus' was sac Jesus's sacrifice was deemed acceptable for his gumball machine loving friends. Jesus, we are the gumball machine lovers, and Jesus' sacrifice and prayer on our behalf is accepted just the way Job's was for his friends. And you can go on and on, but basically there's something beyond what we can understand that's happening. Can we enter into it? In the language of Narnia, in, um, in the, 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 the Chronicles of Narnia, Susan asked, but what does it all mean? And Aslan says, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she does not know. Her knowledge goes only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read that there is a different incantation she would have known. 
that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And in the book of Job, as God begins to speak, he's getting into the terrifying, awe-inspiring chaos that is also hinted at when Jesus is on the cross. When Jesus is being that, um, that willing victim who committed no treachery and killed in the, in the traitor's stead. There's a sense when you read the Gospels about um, Jesus, there's a sense in which you get this feeling that raw power and chaos are being unleashed and shaking the very foundations of reality. When Jesus is on the cross, this is what we read in the Gospel of Matthew. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. Middle of the day. Darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus doesn't get an answer. In the same way Job didn't get an answer for all those, all those times he cried out. When some of those standing near heard what they said, they said, he's calling Elijah. And then reading a little further, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. The earth shook, and rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. These are terrifying, mind-boggling forces of nature that I dare you to explain. I dare you to explain those verses. I think... God is doing the same kind of thing with us in those verses that he's doing with Job. Would you care to explain what's happening there? And yet, these forces are being maneuvered by Jesus on the cross in such a way that will win you and I a loving place in the presence of God. In The Lord of the Rings, and I'll close with this one. In The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf gets into this battle with the Balrog. And it's, this is this dark, scary, evil creature from the deeps that comes up and everybody's just shuddering to their bones. And there's this battle within this mountain where Gandalf stands up to the Balrog and hits the ground with a staff and the bridge that this monster is on, this evil monster, it breaks and falls right before them and it looks like Gandalf has won. But then this tiny tentacle of this monster comes up at the last second, the movie portrays it well, and grabs his leg and pulls him down with him. And they all think Gandalf is dead, and it turns out he ends up chasing this creature through the depths. And he's on the edge of death, and he ends up at a place where he battles this incredibly horrifying evil creature and wins. And then the lore of the Lord of the Rings is that Gandalf actually then passes into death for some days after he defeats this, and then is brought back to life. And when he comes back, Gandalf comes with this renewed power and confidence and this hope in victory. That is like shining from him. In fact, he's no longer Gandalf the Grey. He has died. But Gandalf the White is what he goes by now. It's stunning. It's powerful. Battles have happened underground and in places that no one else would go and understand. But he comes back. And then there's this picture of the little hobbit, Pippin. And they're riding into battle and evil things are happening all around and the dark shadows of the Nazgul are flying over. Don't worry if you have read it. I'm just nerding out a little bit here. And, and they're, 
and Gandalf is on Shadowfax the horse, and Pippin, the little, you know, vulnerable hobbit, is just under his cloak on the front of the horse. And that's the picture. In fact, in fact, Pippin talks about Gandalf whispering things into his ear. And basically, it's going to be okay, don't worry, just go to sleep. As the horse rides into battle and the evil's flying over top. That's a picture of our relationship with God through Christ, who has gone into places to battle things beyond our comprehension and our pay grade, so that we might sit under his protection and he might whisper sweet things into our ear to tell us it's going to be okay. I've got this. Go to sleep. You can rest now. I've got you. Let's pray. Our God of grace, oh, that this would be true. Oh, that we would experience each day that you are so powerful and wonderful at the same time. And as the horrors and terrors of the world frighten us and keep us awake at night, would you develop and nurture a trust in us that you've got us in your hands and that you're going to bring all the world to rights and that even through the injustice of the cross, we get the wonderful injustice of living in the comfort and the joy of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.